listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. This month marks a milestone for me, a very significant milestone. Five years ago this month, my doctor, my oncologist, pronounced that I was in remission from cancer. Glory to God. Well, medically speaking, they they make you wait until the fifth year until you're pronounced cancer-free. So I'm happy to be here at this particular time, five years after the fact that now I can medically say I'm cancer-free. How about that? God is good. That's a milestone for me. I also hit another milestone last week. I bought four months ago an elliptical stair-stepping machine because one of the things that I was dealing with is damage to my lungs from the treatment that I went through when I had my cancer. I had a softball-sized tumor wrapped around my superior vena cava, which is next to the Anagata Davida. Is that right? And um, inoperable, and I had chemo and radiation and all that stuff, and um, it did, uh, they think, some damage to my lungs. So I figured out, you know, I want to be here a long time for my family because I love my family, love my wife, love my kids. Can you uh, begrudge me for that? And I also want to be around a long time for my family here at Grace because I love you too. I love this church. I love you and I want to be around for a long time. So I decided I would buy a stair-step elliptical machine that is like a nightmare on wheels, uh, transportable. And when I first got on that thing, I could only do up to 30 seconds. I couldn't even do 30 seconds on this thing. And I tried and I tried for weeks, and I was just up to 30 seconds. And then I worked my way up to three minutes, and I couldn't do more than three minutes for three months. I struggled and I struggled out of breath, and I was really depressed. I was really discouraged because I thought, what does this mean? Is my lung damage permanent? Am I ever going to break? I was really discouraged. Well, I just hit this past week. Out of 14 stages on this thing, I hit stage nine. I did eight minutes, and I'm still going. I'm going for the whole 14 minutes. So I hope that you will pray for me to continue to make milestones of progress and achievement because the longer I live, unfortunately for you, the longer I'm going to be around. How about that? But I love life. How many of you love life? I love this time of the year. Love this time of the year, the changing of the leaves, the different colors we get to use at our home, our wood-burning fireplace again. Love a wood-burning fireplace. Those of you who have uh, gas fireplaces, you're opposers. You don't have the real thing. Love a wood-burning fireplace, love the changing of the seasons, and of course, because we live here in York, Pennsylvania, we decided that we would not just go to the store and buy pumpkins, we would go to a U-Pick pumpkin patch. How many of you have been to a U-Pick pumpkin patch? It's kind of like a U-Pick apple orchard, but only it's with pumpkins. And they're a lot larger, and that means a lot more work for Dad, because Dad's got to carry these things back to the car, because you're out there God knows where, in the midst of this pumpkin patch, looking for the great pumpkin. So we drove up to this pumpkin patch, you picked pumpkin patch, and we went for our pumpkin orientation. There's a stand set up in the beginning, and they tell you, here's what you get for $2, which nobody wants. Here's what you get for $5, a little bit bigger. Here's what you get for $7, and then, of course, there's no pumpkin there because it's subjective. Then there's this infamous $10 pumpkin size 
that is yet to be determined. Well, my two sons, my 8-year-old and my 10-year-old, decide what they're going to do for their pumpkin. So uh, we get in the car, and we go down this long and winding road, probably the one that the Beatles sang about, yes. We go down this long and winding road, down this stretch to where the pumpkin patch is. We're following all the signs. I park the car, and then boom. I hear the opening of the doors, the closing of the doors. It's like the rapture has occurred end times already. It's like uh, getting a taste of what it's going to be like for emptiness syndrome. It's just my wife and I in the car. I'm looking into the distance waiting for Kirk Cameron or for Nicolas Cage to come out from behind a barn somewhere, tell us that we've been left behind and and, uh, explain the end times uh, reality of things. Well, just while I'm letting that sink in, all of a sudden I look over and my wife is gone. And she's out pursuing her great pumpkin as well. So I get out of the car, I make my way over to the beginning of this three-acre-sized pumpkin patch. And my little guy's already made his decision. He's already decided what pumpkin he's going to choose. I'm thinking, how can you choose your pumpkin? There's this whole three acres, and you've already made your decision. But okay, you've made your decision on your pumpkin. I'm going to find mine. I walk myself through the pumpkin patch, and my wife is with me. And then our older guy's nowhere to be found except in the distance. There he is. All the way at the end, he already determined these pumpkins in the beginning of the pumpkin patch, I will not even stoop to look at them. They cannot be significant, either in size or stature. I will not belittle myself and look at those pumpkins. Certainly, they cannot be significant. I have to go to the end of the pumpkin patch and find the world's largest pumpkin. Give my dad a hernia in the process. That's what he's in the process of pursuing. So he's out there looking and we're turning them over. This one's flat on that side. This one's misshapen. It's large. That one's too big. I won't even be able to carry that in the car. And going through all this process with him. And then uh, he makes his choice. And of course, what do I do? We're out there in the middle of these three acres with all these pumpkins. He makes his choice. We clip it. We begin to pick it up. And we're carrying this thing triumphantly through the the pumpkin patch. I pick up my smartphone and I find the Rocky theme song, Going to Fly Now literally, and I'm playing the theme from Rocky on my smartphone, but it puts some cinematic quality to this whole event, and we take all of our pumpkins back to the car, load them up, and I was thinking as we were going home how we all have different perceptions on what's good, what's better, what's quality, what's inferior. All of us have different perceptions about life, don't we? We all have different attitudes about what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad. And I started to think about where we get those thoughts from. We get them from our family of origin, the family that we grew up in. And those of you who have difficulties in your marriage or those of you who don't have difficulties in your marriage, it doesn't matter whether you have difficulties or not. You're dealing with all the time family of origin issues. Well, that's not the way we did it in my family. In my family, we did it this way. Well, for Thanksgiving, we need to celebrate it this way. Well, that's not the way we did it in my family. And you go back and forth about what is good, better, best, what's right, and what's wrong, all based on your family of origin, all based on what you were taught by your mother and father, what you went through in the course of the, in the experiences of your life. It's not just your family of origin. It's also the things you experience in the course of your life. So it's our experiences And the family upbringing that we have, those things come together, they converge, and they cause, for better or worse, for us to have conclusions about life, perceptions about our reality. Whether it's true or whether it's not true, we all have perceptions about life. You have them, I have them. For example, you have perceptions about God. You do. Some of those perceptions are correct, and they're accurate, and they're right. Some of them are false and need to be flushed. You also have perceptions about yourself. 
Some of them are right. Some of them need to be flushed. Some of them are terrible. In fact, every decision you've ever made, every decision you've ever made, every single decision you've ever made, and every decision you are in the process of making and about to make is influenced by those two factors, what you believe about God and what you believe about yourself. Every decision you make is influenced by your beliefs about God and yourself. That's why I say all the time, what you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. And right next to it, there's no space between them, no daylight between them, is what you believe about yourself. You are announcing to the whole world all the time what you believe about God, what you believe about yourself. And if you can change your thinking about God, if you can change what you believe about God to align with the truth of God's Word, your whole life will change. If you can change your thinking about yourself in alignment with the Word of God, God's handbook for living, your whole life will change. Everything about your life will change. That's why we turn to the, the Gospel of Luke today. In Luke chapter 17, in our Father's Word, beginning in verse 7. Turn with me. Luke chapter 17, in verse 7. Jesus is speaking. And he says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Commandments, servanthood, duty. The idea of being an unworthy servant. We're going to get to, in a moment, that word, unworthy. But before we get there, we want to take a little bit of a look at what it means to be a servant of God. What does it mean to be a servant of God? What does it mean to be the kind of person that Jesus is speaking of? The word that's used here is a word that means bondservant. It could also be translated bondservant. It is the total, complete giving over of the self to another. Where the master is in the driver's seat, owns the truck, owns the field, owns everything, and the person who is serving the master is totally given over. There's not one area of life, there's not one area of the mind that would question that, that would doubt that, that would hold back from the master. That's the word that's used here. That's what's presented by Jesus. The idea of a servant coming in and being served before the master gets served doesn't make sense whatsoever, does it? And so you have to understand, if you are going to be a disciple as opposed to a dabbler, there's a huge difference between a dabbler and the things of God. A dabbler in regard to following Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus Christ, you've got to understand the significance of what it means to be totally given over to Jesus Christ, totally given over to the Master, 
That's what you have to understand in your own spiritual DNA. If you don't settle the issue and understand and embrace the idea of what it means to be a servant, you're dead in the water. You're of no use to the master. And you'll be floundering without vision. You'll be floundering without purpose in your life. You will find purpose in your life. You will find significance in your life. You will find joy in your life by serving your master. And once you begin to understand the truth about the master, when you replace stinking thinking with the truth about who the master is that you're serving, you will be so motivated and so fired up, so in love with God that you will love serving because you will understand the truth of your master. And many of us don't understand the truth of our master. And therefore, we're not very motivated to serve him. We're not very inspired to serve him because there are some falsehoods that we've embraced. Every time, any time you've been in sin, you've been in bondage. You might be there right now. Some of you are shaking your heads because you know what I'm going to say. The reason why there's an addiction the reason why there's bondage, the reason why you realize you're wallowing in mud and helpless and hopeless, is because you don't really see clearly the truth of God and who you are in relationship to Him. Because where those two converge, the truth about God and the truth about yourself, comes motivation to serve the Master who's worthy of service, and who has called you not just to the obligation of serving, but to the privilege. You'll never find a better master than Jesus. You'll never find a better one. But once you find him, once you replace stinking thinking with the truth of God's word, your whole life begins to change. Your marriage begins to change. Your relationships with other people begin to change. Everything about you begins to change. What you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. What you believe about yourself closely follows everything that you're doing, everything you've ever done, everything you ever will do is a reflection of what you believe about God and what you believe about yourself. Look with me at Matthew chapter 28. As we look at the DNA of a disciple, what does a disciple do? There's a four-letter word that should be in your vocabulary and mine when it comes to being a disciple, not a dabbler. Look with me at Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. The Great Commission, that if we've been a follower of Jesus Christ for any length of time, we're familiar with the Great Commission. Well, that's what makes it dangerous. We can be so familiar with the Great Commission that we can, we can forget, we can lose sight of what the Great Commission is really about. Why it's such a Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples, not dabblers, make disciples of all nations. Think of that phrase, all nations. It's going to become significant in just a moment. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe some of what I've commanded you. No. 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. One of the things in the spiritual DNA of a disciple is to O-B-E-Y Jesus, to obey Jesus. That's the four-letter word that needs to be part of your spiritual DNA. That's the difference between a dabbler and a disciple. A disciple obeys Jesus. And it's not possible to obey Jesus without knowing the teachings of Jesus, which are found in the Bible. This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. That's what D.L. Moody said in the 1800s, and it's still just as true in the 21st century as it was then. It's true. As we understand the teachings of God in the Bible, we understand what God requires of us, the commands of God. And they set us free. They don't put us into bondage. If you're a disciple, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, in your DNA must be this idea of obeying the teachings of God. And if you are not willing, if you find yourself unable to follow God in the gray area of life, it might be a very good indication that you have neglected following him in the black and white area of his word. You see, it becomes easier and easier and easier to follow God in the subjective areas of life where what God might be asking you to do might be different than what he's asking me to do. I wasn't married until I was 35 years old. Some of you are so thankful that you got married at a young age. You say, I could never wait that long. Well, God had a lot of things that he had to do in my life because I was slow to learn. My wife got the short end of the stick in that deal. The subjective will of God, what God might be asking you to do, might be different than what he's asking me to do. Some of us have children, some of us don't have children. Some of us wish we didn't have children. Others of us wish we did. And we always think the grass is greener. Whatever God has given you, whatever God has placed under your care, whatever God has withheld from you, is for his glory or for his purpose. Get busy serving God. Get busy loving God. Be that person who is totally given over to his master's will. Whatever God has given you. Whatever God has given you, be totally given over. And you must obey in the black and white areas of what God has revealed. God's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the Bible, his revealed word. The more you're in the word of God, the more the word of God comes out of you, the more you begin to have the mind of Christ, the mouth of Christ, the hands of Christ, the feet of Christ. That's what it's about. Now notice when we say, see Jesus teaching in Luke chapter 17, notice what he says here, because it's amazing how the Bible reinforces itself. In Luke 17, 9 and 10, does he thank the servant? Does the master thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants and have only done what was our duty. The idea is that Jesus said we are to teach others, to make disciples, teaching them to obey everything, not some of the things, not most of the things, not selectively the things that you think are important, but are necessarily important in your view, all the things that Jesus commanded. And so one of the marks of a disciple is that the Bible becomes a precious book. We don't worship the Bible, but we sure are thankful for the Bible because through the Bible, we get a knowledge of God. You'll never serve and worship a God you do not know to the degree to which you will worship and serve the God who you do know based on the truth of his word. When you understand the truth of God, what he's really like, not what you think he's like, 
what he's really like. You will be motivated to love and serve him. Your marriage will change. Your relationships with your children, your relationships with your parents. In fact, every horizontal relationship will change because what you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. What you believe about yourself follows. Because what you believe about yourself is also correlated to what you believe about the person sitting to your left, person sitting to your right, everybody you meet in the course of your life. It's not just about you. It's not me, myself, and I. It's about God, 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 and what he has done to each and every one of his disciples that dabblers have yet to experience. That four-letter word, O-B-E-Y. Precious in the life of a disciple. There's freedom when we follow the black and white teaching in Scripture about how we should love our neighbor as ourselves, how we should surrender ourselves to God perpetually and continually. In the DNA of a disciple is the idea of obeying the commandments of God. And you will find in your life that the subjective will of God is God asking you to move or stay. Is God asking you to change careers or keep your career? What is God doing in your family, with your children or without your children? All the things that you could insert in the blanks. All of those things have greater clarity and greater meaning. See, if you will embrace God by getting to know him through his word, then obeying him in the areas of life that might be different for you than they are for me becomes easier. And the idea of comparing your life to mine or my life to yours or to somebody else becomes a ridiculous pursuit because you realize that God's called you to something different. And your delight is not in what God has called you to do. Your delight is in God who has called you to do whatever. So central to your life, central to my life, central to the life of every disciple of Jesus Christ is the idea of obeying. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2 in our Father's Word, a potent passage of Scripture. Verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Nothing, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The New International Version says better than yourselves. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Attitude does determine altitude. Have this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a bondservant. There's that word used again taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Listen to that. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, it's going to become increasingly significant as we spend time together. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, because He is the Son, fully God. It's the purpose of this passage. You know, look what He's saying here in verses 3 and 4. 
Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do you know when you look at yourself as being more important than somebody else, that's obvious, right? That's a sin issue, because you're not important than somebody else. What if Jesus considered himself more important than you? You'd still be dead in your sins. What if he considered himself, himself more important than me? I'd still be dead in my sins. The fact of the matter is that it's obvious when you consider yourself more highly than you should, that's a sin issue. But when we consider others as equal to ourselves, when we consider each other as equal to ourselves, we have not gone far enough either. And that's also sin. Because sometimes the rubber meets the road. It's great, you're important, I'm important, but if my life's in jeopardy, hey, sorry buddy, I gotta look out for my own skin. Jesus didn't do that. When his life was in jeopardy, he considered you better than himself. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. Because he was a servant. Totally given over to the will of his father. And totally given over to your benefit and to mine. When we consider others equal to ourselves, we are still sinning. We have not gone far enough. Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Our mind should be the same as that of Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, humbling himself, taking on the form of somebody who was totally given over to the will of someone other than himself. You think it's hard giving yourself over to one person the benefit of one person, consider Jesus. He gave himself over entirely to the Father, and he gave himself over entirely for you. That's a servant. And that's who we serve. That's who we serve. You know, it gets old really quick. In the church, you think this wouldn't be a problem in the church, but it is. Everybody jockeys for their own position. Every week, phone call, email, text. We should do this. We should do that. Why don't we do this? Why didn't we do that? We should have done that. Why didn't we? Missed an opportunity here. Missed an opportunity there. Everybody has their view of what needs to be done. Everybody does. It happens in your life as well. Everybody has opinions about what you should be doing for Jesus. How you should be doing it for Jesus. We're so busy looking at how other people are living for Jesus or not living for Jesus that we don't have time to look at our own lives and how we're living for Jesus and what we're doing for Jesus. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. In Paul's day, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19, 20, and 21, look with me. This is Paul, the church planner. Planning many churches, he says in verse 19 of chapter 2, Philippians, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news from you. For I have no one like him. No one like him. No one like him. What are you talking about? Why is Timothy so unique among all the other people that Paul has come across in his church planning endeavors? Well, here it is. Who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare? For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Even in the church, we have people 
who are really not seeking the best interests of Jesus Christ. They think they are. They're sincere, oftentimes sincerely wrong. It is not, at the end of the day, what the lead pastor thinks needs to happen. Because my vision, as big as it might be, still doesn't do justice to Jesus. And neither does yours. I know that we have opinions about how ministry should be done, why it should be done this way, why it should be that way. I'm continually submitting what I think God is calling me to do, what I think God might be calling us to do as a church family. Pastors, elders here, and by podcast, I hope that you're doing the same thing. Because at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is, is your church doing what Jesus envisioned when he hung on the cross? Because none of us has a right to do anything other than that. None of us. None of us has a right to do in our marriages what Jesus didn't envision for your marriage. None of us. Very important to make sure that your motives are purified, stripped down, surrendered to God. At the end of the day, what matters is whether or not we are looking out for the interests of Jesus Christ whether or not we are living lives as disciples who are truly servants with selflessness. That's what Jesus was as a servant, totally selfless, totally given over to his Father, totally given over to such an extent that he was concerned about you, concerned about your quality of living, yes, beginning with the removal of your sin and mine. totally given over to the will of his Father for your benefit and for mine. And those who are following Jesus have the same attitude. That will change your marriage. That will change your interactions with your co-workers, with your neighbors, with your family members. Having the attitude of Christ totally given over to the will of his Father, what would happen in your life and mine if we were totally given over to the will of the Father? Totally as a servant, as a bond servant, as Jesus was. What would happen in this church? What would happen in the churches around this country if we gave up our limited understanding of God and our limited vision of what God could do and we began to pursue Jesus with unconditional surrender for the glory of God the Father? We'd see a revival that we need to stop praying about as if it's somewhere out there. The revival that needs to happen is right here in this temple of the body. Oh God, send a revival in me. Oh Lord, help me understand what it means to be a servant totally, not partially, not seemingly. I don't want to be a poser. I want to be a player in the kingdom of God. I want to be a disciple, not a dabbler. We've got to O-B-E-Y, Jesus. We've got to be selflessly, selflessly serving God. Selflessness becomes key and strategic, fundamental to the, the, the DNA of a disciple. This idea of being unworthy servants, what does it mean to be unworthy? Many people have that word confused. Many of us do. If you go around your life thinking that you're worthless, and you think worthless is the same as being unworthy, you're going to make terrible choices in your life. Many of us do that. We seek love and affection and affirmation from places where we 
We'll never get the love and affection and affirmation that can only come from the living and true God, can only come from Jesus. Many of us, some of us are still digging out from holes that we dug because we had stinking thinking. We confused being unworthy with being worthless. World of difference. Look with me at Revelation chapter 5. In the book of Revelation in chapter 5. Verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. See, there it is again. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that's Jesus, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The idea of the completeness of God's spirit. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, this is speaking about Jesus. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Remember that the next time you think God's not interested in your prayers, He is interested in your prayers. How does God see your prayers? As a sweet-smelling aroma, a sacrifice that please His nostrils. He wants you to offer up prayers to Him. He sees your prayers as being significant and important. No, it's you and me that take ourselves out of the equation. How many times have we done that? Oh, God isn't interested in my prayer. God's not answering my prayer. Well, maybe it's taking a little bit of time. Maybe you're not praying in a prayer of faith because you don't believe that God's really interested in your prayers. But if you begin to understand that God sees your prayers as being something valuable, golden bowl full of incense, and your prayers go up to Him with that kind of significance, that will motivate you to pray differently, will it not? And they sang a new song, verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, here it is again, and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. And then in Revelation 7, 9, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, speaking of Jesus, 
Then all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Who is worthy? Jesus is worthy. Who is the center of attention? Jesus is the one on the throne looking as if he had been slain because he was slain for your sin and for mine. He's the one that is worthy of all of our attention. The world doesn't revolve around you. It doesn't revolve around me. There's no such thing as your ministry. There's no such thing as my ministry. It's God's ministry for God's glory because he alone is worthy. That's the truth. You know, you're literally speaking, you are one in a million. A great multitude that cannot be counted. You are one in a million. Jesus envisioned that for you, that one day you would be one of those people in that great multitude wearing not a filthy rag, not a dirty robe, but a white robe because every single one of your sins has been removed by the one who sits on the throne. Jesus, that's worth. That's Value. That's something I can sink my teeth into. That's what motivates me. That's what motivates a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what helps me. That's what will help you obey that kind of a God. Because while I was a sinner, while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. He not only envisioned that crowd, that great multitude, with all the angels and the elders and the living creatures bowing down before none other than Jesus. He saw that you would be one in a million. You'd be one of those. You're one of those people. You need to see the end at the beginning of your life with Christ. You need to see that you are one of those people. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, wearing a white robe, all of your sins having been removed. And you know what you're going to be doing? You're one of those people worshiping and adoring the only one who's worthy of everything. That's why the elders were casting down their crowns earlier in the book of Revelation. Because God gives us rewards. God gives us gifts. And what do we do with them? We give them back to the Lord. That's what it's all about. He gives us more so that we can give Him more. There can be this loving, beautiful relationship between that God who's worth and the only one worthy of taking the scroll. The only one, therefore, worthy of being praised and worshipped and adored. And how much time we waste, how much time we waste not settling the issue of who's going to be worthy of all of my life's endeavors, all of our life's endeavors, all of the glory, all of the honor. We need to get serious and get busy about what we're going to be doing in all of eternity, wearing white robes, having been given them not by what we did, but by what Jesus did. See, many people, though, are sincere and they're sincerely wrong. I remember being in Florida with a bunch of church planners getting ready to plan our church. This was one of our funding churches that was funding us. And this very well-meaning pastor who was older ended up going on to be the president of a seminary. I almost said cemetery. Looked out among this sea of about 50 church planners and potential church planners with a smirk on his face and great emphasis and sincerity in his voice, he said, you guys are nothing but a worthless bunch of garbage. Every one of you a worthless piece of garbage. 
And at the end of the day, you're nothing. <laughs> so the brother, he looked at me and I was, I'm worthless. And I'm going to help people be motivated to love and serve God. So I'm a pastor and I'm worthless. God is angry with me. God hates me. I have no value to God whatsoever. And I'm somehow going to help other people who don't even know Jesus be motivated to love, serve, worship, adore, and enjoy that God. It's not possible. No wonder why we have problems. No wonder why we have difficulty opening up the, opening up the Bible and reading ourselves in the pages of that book because we believe that God is ticked off at us. We believe that we're worthless pieces of garbage. We're sincerely wrong. And some people who are sincere are sincerely wrong. A well-meaning person who's planted hundreds of churches with his church, who ends up being the president of a seminary, ends up having the same effect as what happens to somebody when they're buried in a cemetery. You're killing the motivation of people because you're not teaching what the Bible teaches. You're not worthless. It's not the same thing to be worthless compared to being unworthy. They're totally different. You and I, we're not worthy of what Jesus did. We're not worthy of being the center of attention, whether it's our marriages or our workplace or the church or in the business world or in our neighborhood. None of us is worthy of being the center of attention. There's only one who's worthy of being the center of attention. His name is Jesus. All history is culminating in that. So much so that nothing in heaven, nobody in heaven, nobody on earth, nobody under the earth, nobody in the sea, no living creature will be exempt from bowing the knee, expressing that Jesus Christ is God to the glory of God the Father. We do it. Willingly. But there is a difference, and you need to understand the difference between being unworthy and yet being worth a great deal to God. doesn't sound to me like God would be excited about having a bunch of garbage, innumerable. The reason why you don't like garbage is because God who made you doesn't like garbage. It's not very exciting if at the end of the day all God's doing is gathering a bunch of garbage around himself. Look with me at Matthew chapter 6. You see how the Bible interprets itself. Matthew chapter 6, 26. Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Are you not of more value than they? It doesn't sound to me like Jesus is talking about a bunch of garbage. It sounds to me like Jesus says you're more valuable than the birds. And God takes care of the birds because they're valuable to him as well. You are worth a great deal to God. Jesus wouldn't have died for junk. God would not have given his uniquely brought forth one-of-a-kind son to die for garbage. You're worth a great deal to God. You're not worthy to be the center of attention, but you are worth a great deal because through you, you will give glory to the one who is worthy. I will give glory to the one who is worthy. Your life matters to God. Not only your life, so does your spouse's life, your children's lives. See, it's not just that you are worth a great deal. Every human being is worth a great deal. Live like it. Act like it. The world, of course, wants to belittle the significance 
of man and woman, wants to belittle the significance of the human race, wants to put us on par with the animals because then we're not significant, we're not worth a great deal to God, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Beware of what you're believing, what's being jammed down your throat, what's being stuffed into your ears, what you might be stuffing into your own ears, what you might be allowing to take up residence in your mind. That's competing with the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ. Take responsibility for what's going on in your life. What you embrace, because what you believe about God, what you believe about people, what you believe about yourself will make its way into your lifestyle. It doesn't sound to me from Matthew chapter 6, verse 26. Are you not of more value than they? That God sees you as junk, as garbage. In fact, look with me at Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she would have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of your hands. Your walls are continually before me. The idea of God looking at the circumstances of our lives, the idea of God having names of his people engraved on the palms of their hands. Would God engrave garbage onto his hands? If you're not worth a great deal to him, why would God have you? Engraved, your name, engraved on the palms of his hands. Why would Jesus pursue garbage? If you're worthless, what would that really be saying about the life of Jesus? Doesn't sound like terminology to me at all of being worthless. Sounds to me like you're worth a great deal because God made you. And God did not make junk. Look with me at the book of Genesis in the beginnings, chapter 1. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man, the idea of the Trinity, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, how could the human race be trash and garbage if we're made after the image and likeness of God? Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. Look at the repetition here. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything, not some things, not most things, everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. In fact, it was so good. And God was so finished with what he had created that he took an entire day the next day and he did nothing but rest and bask in how good he had really done his work you're not an accident you're not a mistake you're not worthless you're not trash 
You're not garbage. You are created in the image and likeness of God. Precious and valuable. That's why Jesus came and died on the cross so that you could have the opportunity, so that I could have the opportunity of being one in a million. One in a million in that crowd who will one day be before the throne of Jesus, worshiping the King of kings, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the one who was slain, the one who was and is and is to come. We could be, each of us, one of a million. One in a million, but oh, what a one you are. Oh, what a one you are, precious to the Father, worth a great deal, because Jesus didn't die for junk. God the Father didn't offer his Son for junk. You're one in a million, but oh, what a one you are created for intimacy and closeness with your master, being a servant totally given over to him because he loves you, he cares for you, he's taking care of all of your needs. No, you're not worthy to be the center of attention. Drive a nail in that coffin and put it to rest. Bury it six feet under and do it repeatedly. Only Jesus is worthy. But oh, how worthy Jesus is And oh, how worth a great deal you are. You are one in a million. Live like it for the glory of God. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.